Everything's going to go perfectly for the rest of the evening. So, hey, welcome to church. Uh, we're, we're doing what? What was you face? What was it? <laughs> Facebook. That's the one. Okay, thanks, Tim. I need that. What is it? Water. Yes. <laughs> I'll do. Right. So we're doing Facebook Live and Twitter Live. Let's hear it for the Facebook livers and Twitter livers. Uh, but hey, you've got the real live event here. Welcome to church. My name's Pete. If you're visiting, let me add my welcome to Dan's. Um, hey, Dan. I'll be fine, mate. I'll be okay. Uh, it's really good to have you visiting the church. And tonight, we're, we're continuing a series looking at relationships. And uh, we, we see that relationships are obviously close to the heart of God. God has a heart and a passion for human beings. And the whole idea of a relationship was, was God, God's idea from the first place. But so often relationships can be the source of greatest joy in our lives, but also sometimes the source of greatest anguish in people's lives. That would be the story if I went around with a microphone this evening. Some of your stories would be, relationships are great. Others of your stories would be, the greatest scars in my soul have come from relationships. So doing relationships well are so important to us and to God. So uh, God needs to help us, and this is a, it's a really, a really important journey. So tonight, I hope and I pray that what we share on tonight on marriage, the subject of what is the point of marriage, will actually be helpful for you. Now, there's lots of material to cover. We're going to have a Q&A, live Q&A at the end of the, end of this evening. Uh, but I'm also, we're going to fire, I'm, I'm on my Twitter feed, I'm firing out a pile of tweets with links to different articles and extra reading things uh, for you to follow up on if, if you're on Twitter. It'll, they'll also link to Facebook as well, so you'll get extra material. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you're among us. You love us and you have a plan for us. Jesus Christ, you're the saviour of the world. We say thank you that you believed so radically in relationship that you came into this world, Jesus, and you died in our place on the cross. You paid the price so that we could be reunited with you, the ultimate relationship. Tonight, God, I pray that not only would we learn about earthly relationships and learn how to do it well, I pray that most of all, we would discover the greatest relationship ever, relationship with you, which is the fuel in the fire of every other relationship. I pray for anyone tonight who doesn't yet know you, let them come to know you. I pray people's lives will be transformed tonight. People will leave here entirely different. Marriages will be rescued and strong marriages will be prepared for. Help me to speak, help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there was an old guy, a farmer, and he'd been married a long, long time. And he had a visitor, a relative visiting from the city. And he was just watching the old farmer as he was dealing with his sheepdog and the sheep. And he was doing all these whistles and all this. And the sheepdog was doing its stuff. And the sheepdog was incredible. Rounded up all the sheep perfectly, got them into this little pen. And with his paw, pushed the door and put the bolt over in the pen. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And the guy he was watching said, that's an amazing dog you've got. What's the name of your dog? And the, and the forgetful farmer, the old forgetful farmer so, oh, what what do you call that sweet-smelling flower? It's got like a stem with, with thorns on it. And the guy said, Rose? I said, oh, yeah. And he turned to his wife and said, Rose, what do you call our dog again? <laughs> so, marriage is great. Are you, so let me just, so know who I'm talking to tonight. Who here is, who here is married? Hands up if you're married. All right, okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks. 
Who here would like to be married? Hands up. Why did the married people put their hands down? <laughs> Come on. Married people, put your hands back up again. Who here would like to be married? Yeah, okay, that's better. Okay, that's good. So what is the point of marriage? You know, Jesus and Paul both addressed the subject of marriage. And I'm going to try and address the subject of marriage the way Jesus addressed the subject of marriage by pointing people right back to the origins, the very beginning of where marriage originated in the heart of God. You want to do things well, you want life to work, go back to the instruction book. Go back to how it was designed to be in the very beginning. And in Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced to the whole concept of marriage. The concept of marriage was not man-made, therefore we can't tamper with the concept. We didn't come up with it, God came up with it, it was his institution. And therefore it's a God-given institution which mankind cannot tamper with or redefine. God defined it, and let's go to it in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, this is what God says in Genesis 2 verse 18. The Lord God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place, up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. It was like he called her, wow, man. That's where woman came from. That's in the Hebrew. You wouldn't get that unless she understood the Hebrew. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this is where Jesus pointed the crowds when they were asking about marriage. He pointed them right back to the beginning. This is how God did it in the beginning. I have to say tonight what I'm going to share with you will not be politically correct. But my allegiance isn't to our society or to the societal norms because they're not working. I don't know if you've noticed that. They're not working. What my allegiance to is and what we're committed to as a church is not to be popular but to be biblical. We believe, we actually believe, it's kind of old school but cool, it's old school. We believe the Bible. We really believe that the Bible is God's word. In fact, it's not old-fashioned. It's the future. It's describing a, a kingdom which will reign in the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it is the future. The, the kingdom of God, the Bible, the world, and the realm of God is the future. It's not old school. It's cool. It's great. It's current. It's radical, and it will change your life. And hey, you've tried doing it the world's way. It doesn't work. Why not just do it God's way? Build on a solid foundation. Jesus says you're a wise man if you build your life on his words. So God's given us a foundation here. And what, what I want to do is I want to unpack this foundation and, and just apply it to our lives. You up for that? Even if you're not, that's what we're going to do. So uh, let, let, let me start where the verses start. Verse 18a. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Singleness. I want to make a point, first of all, that Christianity is the only major religion in the world started by a single guy. In an ancient world where singleness was viewed as a second-class state, that's pretty impressive. Jesus elevated singleness to an incredible place. Jesus made it very clear that singleness is not a second-class state. My question is, how is God now saying, in the middle of paradise, something is not good. 
Interesting, eh? Everything's perfect. And yet, in the middle of paradise, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. How do you know if God wants you to be married or not? How do you know if it's God's will for you to be single all your days or married? What you see in the verses is God said something and Adam said something. God had a desire and Adam had a desire and they both correlated. God said it's not good for man to be alone. Adam, when he's presented with Eve, again, if you did understand the Hebrew language, it's, it's not just, a, ah, this is bone of my bones and flesh. He says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a yay moment. It indicates there was a desire in the heart of Adam that correlated with a desire in the heart of God. How do you know if you're meant to be married? Jesus, in the New Testament, said this in Matthew 19, verse 11. Not everyone, speaking about singleness, he said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He's talking about singleness. If you are meant to be single all your days, you will be able to accept Jesus' instruction to singleness. You will will have a sense of deep acceptance of that. There won't be a hankering after anything different. There'll be a sense of, that's cool. I'm really meant to be single. If, however, there is a desire in your heart like there was in Adam, where he desired relationship, and when the relationship came, he said, at last. That indicates that it is the plan of God for you to be married. If you're totally cool and at peace with singleness, that is God's gift to you. If you're not cool with that, and there's a deep desire in your heart for marriage, that is God's gift for you. Believe God, it will happen. That doesn't mean you should desire it more than you desire God. That's when things get out of proportion. Anything you desire above God, and it becomes a God, starts to become distorted and the very thing you want will then elude you or if you get it, it would ruin you. Having God first always keeps everything safe and in perfect tension. So whether you're married or whether you're single, find your deepest fulfillment in God because it's only in God will you find the ultimate desires of your soul being fulfilled. You think, you're all, oh, I'll be really happy when I'm married. Not the case. You'll be really happy when you've got God's center in your soul. Find your deepest satisfaction in God. Married people find your deepest satisfaction in God, your creator. Single people find your deepest satisfaction in God, your creator. And maybe today you don't yet know God. And if you're here tonight and you don't yet know God, why would you want to live another day without knowing God? Tonight in this service, I'll give you the opportunity. Cross the line in your heart. Make a choice to put your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose again and walk out of here in relationship, in the greatest relationship your relationship with God, yeah? So here's the surprise. God says in paradise, it is not good. How could this be in paradise? Was it a mistake? Was there something imperfect? No, there was something incomplete. Why was something not good? Okay, well, to understand that, you've got to go back and look at how God's created. Genesis chapter one, God created. And it says, God said, let there be light. Let there be sun, moon, and stars. Let there be vegetation. Let there be, let there be. But in, in the sixth day, it says, God said it differently. He says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Genesis 1:26. All of a sudden, God refers in a different way. He goes from impersonal creation, let there be, let there be, let there be, <clears throat> to all of a sudden, when it came to mankind in day six, he said, let us make mankind in our plural image. The Bible says you've been created in the image of God. That's why you're incredibly special. 
You're not just a monkey who got lucky. You're not a follically challenged ape. You are a human being. You're created in the image of God. God created you distinctly. That's why you're special. You're incredibly valuable. Every human being from conception to uh, departing this earth is precious in the sight of God. Amen? You're created in the image of God. That means you've been created in the image of a trinity. God has eternally existed in perfect relationship, in community. He's Trinitarian by nature. And that means we were designed in the, we were created in the image of a we, not a me. That means there's this desire within us, not just to be a me, but to be a we. God isn't a me, he's an us. God is a Trinitarian. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He always has been, always will be. I know it's a mystery, but that's the reason why it is not good for man to be alone, because you were created for a community, because you were created in the image of God, who is a community of persons, and yet one God. You're created for a relationship. He's not a me, he's an us. You'll not be complete as a me, you will only be complete as an us. And that just doesn't just talk about marriage, by the way. Now here's the difficulty. Some people get married and officially they put a ring on their finger, they sign the paper, but they continue to act as a me rather than now changing gear in their mind saying, no, no, we're an us. Continue to make decisions as a me rather than as an us. Continue to operate as a me, independently minded. That doesn't work. That's not marriage. Marriage is where you operate as an us. Some people turn up at church and they and you, you're in church and you continue to operate as a me. But you're meant to be part of an us. It's easy to turn up at church on a Sunday and be kind of disappear in the crowds. But God doesn't want you just to be part of a crowd. He wants you to be part of a community. And it's in community your life will be transformed. I just want to encourage you, don't, don't just turn up on a Sunday. Hey, you're welcome to. It's so good to have you here. But I'd love you to be part of the community. Don't just turn up on a Sunday. Like, you know, snooker balls coming out of the pockets and clinking off each other on the table. And then you all go back into your own little pockets. God's calling us to be a community that changes our city. So be involved in a small group through the week. Serve in a team. Make this your church. Plug in. Invest and be invested in. Let it transform your life. Society says, to succeed, you've got to be a me. The key is being me. That's what society says. The society says, You've got to need no one. Be independent. Be self-sufficient. Be a self-made person. But that's a destined for failure recipe. You need community to grow into his likeness. You need others to become like all that God wanted you to be. You will never fulfill your potential by yourself. You need relationship with people who are different from you. And that could include marriage, but it could also include people in a church, small group or in a church environment. You were created for a relationship. That's why it was not good for man to be alone. God goes on in verse 18 and says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Helper. I know that sounds like a demeaning term to the ladies, but let me just unpack this a little bit before you stone me. I believe that men and women are created equally. Give me an amen. Amen. It says in Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created men and women in the image of God. Therefore, both together, we have equal value in the sight of God. Men and women are equal, and yet, the Bible is clear, men and women are different. Say different. So let me give you some facts and figures. So phone conversations for guys can be over in 30 seconds flat. Done. A five-day holiday requires only one suitcase. Just one. It doesn't even need to be big, just a small 
suitcase. Eh, Ange? Why are you nodding? You, you know that's not the case. For me, it's fine. We can open all our own jars, guys. You know we can. We can open all our own jars. You can go to the bathroom without others. It's totally safe. Totally safe. We can leave a hotel bed unmade. It's fine. You can enjoy a quiet car ride from the passenger seat. You don't have to clean your flat before the meter reader comes. You can quietly watch a game with your mate for hours without ever thinking, he must be mad at me. We can just sit there quietly. Everything's fine. You can drop by and see a friend without having to buy them a little something, a gift. Your pals can be trusted never to trap you with a, so did you notice anything different? You never have strap problems in public. Christmas shopping can be accomplished for 25 relatives on December the 24th in 45 minutes. Guys are very different from girls, all right? Someone said, I haven't spoken to my wife in years. I didn't want to interrupt her. So guys are incredibly different to women. But the Bible says, so men are equal, men and women are equal, but men and women are different. Say amen. Now, what does it mean when God said, I will make a helper suitable for Adam? What does that mean? Now, helper sounds like a demeaning term, but it's not a demeaning term. It's interesting, actually, helper, the same, exact same word in the Hebrew, helper, that's used to describe the wife, is also used to describe none other than God himself. Same word, helper. So it's not a demeaning term. It's described, of the 19 times the word helper is used in the Old Testament, 16 of those 19 times are used directly to refer to God. Helper infers help given from a stronger one to a weaker one. All right, ladies? That's not so bad. The only way you can help someone with algebra is if you're better at algebra than they are. So a helper means you have great strength. It infers someone different. Different is good. And different transforms you. In marriage, God likes it when two different people are together. That transforms you. My life has been transformed being married to Angie. I'm different because Angie's different to me. I'm transformed because of Angie, she's different to me. I find myself in situations where, I, I, like I used to, you know, when I had a decision to make, I just, all right, this is what Pete does, and I just do Pete's thing. But now, after, we're going to be 20 years married this summer. After 20 years, I know we got married when we were three. That's how, that's how, that's how young we are. But now, after 20 years married, here's, here's what happens, right? Here's what happens. I, I find myself making a decision, and I'm thinking, oh, here's what Pete does. And all of a sudden, bing, up pops Angie. I think, where did you come from? Then all of us have all these thoughts I never used to have. I could do it this way. And it's so much wiser than what I would have done. And I'll do this. I was so clever. But the thing is, all of a sudden, I've got all these thoughts and ways of thinking that I didn't have before. And it's just come by the wisdom of the helper that God has placed in my life. Transforms your life. Absolutely. You you remain, you, you are totally transformed from this thing called marriage. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, describing the difference between men and women, it says in Ephesians 5, 22 onwards, wives submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 33, sorry, verse, verse 24, I think it is. Now, the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 33, 
Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here the Bible is very clear that there is a clear order in the home. It doesn't mean there's not equality, but there is difference. Again, this is not politically correct, but I'm proposing to you this is what, well, this is God's word, and God's word works. Husbands are to be the head of the home. We're not voting on who's the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And we're not voting on who's the head of the home. The husband is the head of the home. The question isn't, is he head or not? The question is, is he doing a good job or not? That's a different question. Okay? You know, being head of the home is, is a very big responsibility. You see, are you giving yourself for her that she might flourish? That's what it means to be the head of the home. You know, we, and here's this, this whole concept of head of the home has been distorted and warped down through the generations, you know, in the Victorian era, where the head of the home met, you were the, the hotheads, the dogmatic hotheads, who just decided what happened in the home, and you kind of smoked smoke cigars while, when discussed politics with the men in, in the lounge, while the woman did the dishes. That's not what head of the home means, that just means being a, a jerk, right? That just means being a hothead. That doesn't, that doesn't, that's nothing biblical at all. You've just taken the Bible and justifying your chauvinistic preferences. That's not what head of the home means. Head of the home, according to Jesus, means you're laying your life down for her. It means you're taking responsibility for her. It means you're laying your life down sacrificially so that she might flourish. That's, that's what it's saying. So, how, you know, defining your masculinity. How do you define your masculinity? Defining your masculinity is nothing to do with how much you earn, whether you can burp your ABCs, right? Defining your masculinity is not, nothing to do with, you know, what car you drive, or, you know, how loud you can fart. Okay, monkeys can do all these things. How you define your masculinity is to do with how much responsibility you can carry before God. That's, that's how you define your masculinity. Jesus was the ultimate man, and he laid his life down for a bride, the church. He laid his life down. The bottom line is, are you taking responsibility for your life, men? Are you taking responsibility for your wife, men? Are you taking responsibility for your kids before God? That's what it means to be the head of the home. The measure of masculinity is responsibility. And it's not just sacrificial love. Jesus gave everything on the cross to rescue for himself a bride. But it wasn't just sacrificial love that was how his headship's expressed. It was the way he, he took the initiative. That's what headship means. The man took the initiative. Jesus took the initiative in order to rescue the bride. It means you take initiative, guys. Stop being so passive. Take initiative. It means providing, protecting, speaking lovingly to, taking care of, loving long-term. That's what Jesus does. And that's what husbands should do. That's what the Bible is telling us. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says the husbands are to, um, the wives are to submit to the husband's lead. But it also says husbands are to lay your life down for your wife. And it's like pedals on a bike. And when both pedals are doing their work, the bike moves forward. As the husband lays his life down for the wife, that empowers the woman to then honor that kind of husband. And when she honors that kind of husband, that empowers the man to be that kind of husband. And here's the thing. You know, ladies, if, if you're constantly just criticizing him, telling him what he's not, and telling him how he's failed, and telling him how he could do better, if that's all you're doing, just eroding his confidence, then no wonder he's, a, no wonder he's weak. No wonder he's not taking initiatives, because you're disempowering him. And nothing disempowers a man more than constant dripping. The Bible calls it, like a dripping tap. A nagging wife is like a dripping tap. It erodes his confidence. It stops him being all that God created him to be. You've got to learn to build him up and encourage him and speak about what he's called to be, not what he's not doing. And men equally, you need to take responsibility, like I've said, like Jesus did for the church. So headship and submission. In verse 21 and 
22. Are you still all out there? Are we happy? Okay. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. And then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Here's the first wedding ceremony. And God, the father, brings the bride to the man. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The first father who gave away the bride was God giving away the woman to the man. It's an amazing moment. God said to Adam, Adam, I'm going to give you a woman. She's going to be amazing. She will cook all your meals for you. She'll never disagree with you. She will always be at your beck and call. She'll sit and watch football with you all day long. God, that's amazing. How much will that cost me? And God says, it'll cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam says, what can I get for a rib? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding you. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, said this. The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be an equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. I love that. Verse 23. The man said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, again, in the Hebrew language, what's going on here is poetry. It's rhyme. It's poetry. So here we have the first piece of poetry in all history. First piece of artwork. The first piece of artwork and poetry in all history was a love song about marriage in the beginning of the Bible. I love that. Verse 24 That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. I want to camp here for a little bit. What's interesting here is the husband will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. What it's saying is you've got to leave and you've got to cleave. You've got to move out of one regime and set up a new regime. You've got to move out of one dominion and set up a whole new dominion. What's really important is this, and this is where some of the problems in some of your marriages have come, is where you've prioritized parental bonds over marital bonds. Where you've prioritized what your parents' comments are on your marriage more than what you both think about your marriage. For some of you, that's been a real problem, and you need to deal with that. For some of you, that's really undermined your marriage because the, 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 the outlaws, sorry, the in-laws, have been making too many comments... I've been making too many comments, getting too interfering, telling you too much what you should and shouldn't do. That's not acceptable. Marriage fails if the mother-in-law or the father-in-law is constantly interjecting and constantly trying to manipulate or trying to change or trying to comment on the marriage. There's got to be a leaving. There's got to be an appropriate leaving. And also from the parents, as you're releasing your kids to get married, there's got to be an appropriate releasing and respecting of the new thing that God has set up. So there's, and you've got to understand that's really important. Some of you constantly listen to your mother more than you listen to your husband and he feels utterly undermined. You need to stop that or you're ruining your marriage. But it says that they will become one flesh. Say one flesh. What does one flesh mean? I've got four things it means. First of all, it means it was God's doing. Jesus adds to this Genesis verse and, and he, in the context of Genesis, he takes it forward and he adds a bit on and he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, therefore what God has joined together... Let no one separate. Jesus quoting this verse from Genesis says, they will leave the mother and father and be joined. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is saying that when people become one flesh, 
God has literally joined two people together. God did that. Yeah, but well, I thought I chose them. Yeah, I know you chose them. And I thought we, we just, we saw each other and we made that choice. I get it. There was a human element to it. But you have to understand that God was involved in the whole process and God joins people together. I believe in that. One flesh, God brings people together. And by the way, if God's brought people together, prolonged periods apart is not healthy for your marriage. Listen, I don't care if it's going to advance your career or if it's going to be good for your academic progress. Long periods of absence away from husband and wife is not good for your marriage. If God brought you together, don't, don't let any career path or any academic pursuit jeopardize that bringing together. It will undermine your marriage. Still smile at me. B, one flesh refers to covenant. It refers to covenant. We're living in this culture where people are rejecting the idea of getting married and instead they're just shacking up together. Hey, listen, we don't really need to do this marriage thing. Let's just live together. Let's just live like we're married. Cohabitation. But the problem is actually the failure rate of cohabitation is far higher than the failure rate of marriage. Let me read you, and again, I've, I've tweeted some of these articles. Let me read you an article by, uh, in Christianity Today by a guy called Mike McManus, and the article's called Better Together. He says, decades of high divorce rates have given rise to a generation of young adults who fear marriage. In response, the statistics show that they now live together to test their compatibility. Many still believe the enduring myth that cohabitation works as a sort of trial marriage. In reality, cohabitation often becomes a trial divorce. The only question is whether the couple split before or after the wedding. Only 45% of cohabiting couples under, sorry, about 45% of cohabiting couples undergo what we call premarital divorce, which can be as painful emotionally as the real thing. The half that make it to the altar are about 50% more likely to divorce than those who lived apart prior to marrying. In the end, as few as 15 out of 100 couples who cohabit go on to have a lasting marriage. 15% of people who cohabit go on to have a lasting marriage. By contrast, a woman who lives with a man is three times more likely to be physically abused than a married woman. Infidelity for cohabiting men is four times that of married men. And for infidelity for cohabiting women is eight times more likely than for married women. So out of fear, you know, a generation we've seen our parents divorce and out of fear, people have said, well, I'm not going to go down that route. But listen, fear is a lousy decision maker. We should make decisions on faith based on truth. And out of fear, people are saying, well, we can't get married. That didn't work. But what's your alternative? Lifting together? That fails more. And sure, it hasn't got the legal ramifications, but it has all the emotional ramifications, exact same emotions that a separating divorced couple would experience. Another article by Amanda Patel from the Daily Mail. She said this, more than half of all the births in the UK are now outside of wedlock. Research is published by the Centre of Social Justice shows that one in two cohabiting couples break up before the child is five years old compared to one in 12 where the parents are married. And statistically, children raised by two parents in two-parent homes are far more likely to succeed and do well at school, stay out of trouble with the law, and graduate to happy, well-adjusted lives than those who were born outside of wedlock. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad. I'm just saying, hey, listen, 
If, and, and maybe, do you know, some of you are divorced. Some of you have gone through the pain of some of the things I'm describing here. And I'm hoping you're sitting there saying, preach it, Pete, absolutely right. Someone needs to say it. Because society ain't saying this stuff. But the Bible says this stuff. So we want to say this stuff. The Bible teaches that marriage is a covenant. Malachi 2 verse 14. She is your companion, your wife by covenant. Covenant means a binding agreement. It's a till death do us part agreement. You know, we're living in a very warped society where people only consider marriage when they're thinking, okay, it's probably about time we have kids. How warped is that? That you would get married to her just for the sake of kids? How about getting married to her for the sake of her? That's warped. Isn't that warped? It's about covenant. Kids are born out of that amazing covenant relationship. You don't start the covenant for the sake of kids. You start the covenant for the sake of her. And then kids are born from that place of security. You see, love like Jesus loved the church. That's, that's our example. How Jesus loved the church. That's our example. And this is how Jesus loved the church. It's described in Jeremiah 32 verse 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will never stop doing good to them. Husbands, you ought to say that to your wife. I will never stop doing good to you. In fact, husbands, turn to your wife just now. Look them in the eyes and tell them, I will never stop doing good to you. I will never stop doing good to you. Come on, say it. I will never stop doing good to you. Guys, you sit beside a girl you want to marry, turn her, look in her eye. No, no don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I will never stop doing good to you. Okay, what if you, have no, lo- what, what if you no longer feel happy in marriage? What if the happy feelings have just, gone, have just gone? Listen, staying married isn't about maintaining feelings of love. It's about keeping covenant. Our society has idolized happiness. Happiness. Happiness comes and goes. It's just an emotion. Half the time it ruins your life in pursuit of happiness. Being married and a successful marriage isn't about maintaining feelings of happiness. That's a lie. Staying married and being married is about covenant keeping, which is an awesome, an awesome agenda. I love what Tim Keller said. I love this. He said this. Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. I love that. You know, I remember hearing an Indian uh, pastor who was talking to a Western pastor. And he said that in India, we often have, most of the marriages are arranged marriages. And in, in the West, that's not typically the case. But the Indian pastor made a comment. He said this. He said, in the West, you marry the one you love. In the East, we love the one we marry. And you know, I'm not necessarily up for arranged marriages. But I have to say, there's a truth about that. And that's why many arranged marriages are actually very successful. Because they said, you know what? I'm going to love you till the day I die. You're going to change and I'm going to change, but I'm going to love you till the day I die. That's old school. That's cool. Build society. And here's what the society does. Society celebrates the pursuit of happiness. You see it in all the movies. All the movies celebrate the beginnings of relationships, don't they? They idolize the beginnings of relationship. Whether it be the the, the romance relationship or whether it be the affair relationship. They always celebrate the exciting beginnings. I mean, how many movies do you watch that celebrate the old couple? <laughs> right. 
and they still just love each other years on. That'd be a boring movie, right? It would be a boring movie. I get it. It would be a boring movie. But it's cool. It's old school and it's cool. That's, that's hardcore. That's real love. That's God's kind of love. That's covenantal love. But the movies don't do that. The movies just celebrate beginnings. And as a result, we all crave new beginnings. And people become dissatisfied with what they've got. Listen, if the grass is greener on the other side, it's probably because it's astroturf. So don't go pursuing the lie. Because those who have pursued the lie will tell you there is a sting in the tail and it's agonizing. And you live with that regret for years. I'm here to say something society isn't saying today. I'm here to say that actually God's ideal is one man, one woman for life. That's it. Happiness isn't the foundation of marriage. Covenant is. One refers to covenant. Then thirdly, one refers to sex. Say, "Uh uh-oh. Or, oh yeah. Okay, you can say whatever one you want. One refers to sex. One flesh in the New Testament, when it says, they shall become one flesh in the New Testament, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, one flesh is making clear reference to sex. So, by the way, covenant and sex go completely together. You don't get one without the other in the Bible. You don't get benefits without responsibilities. They all go hand in hand. If you get benefits without responsibilities, it's not safe. If you have sex outside of covenant, it's not safe. It's just like you take sex. So, imagine you've got a nice warm hearth in your living room and you have a coal fire there. And it's lovely and it's warm and it gives warmth to those in the room. And it's really nice and comforting. You take the coal out of the fire, throw it across the floor, you burn your house down. Coal in the context of fire of a hearth is safe. In the context of just anywhere, it is very dangerous. Sex in the context of marriage covenant is very safe and brings great blessing and reward. Sex outside of the context in which it was designed for, I could go around with a microphone. And you could tell me how disastrous that fire has been in your soul and in your life. You know that. Sex, one refers to sex. You see, covenant, covenant is about saying, I am totally and exclusively yours. That's what covenant says, isn't it? And you put a ring in your finger and you make covenant with someone. I am totally and exclusively yours. That's what you're saying in covenant. In sex, that's what you're saying physically. In sex, you're physically saying to another person, I am totally and exclusively yours. That's what you're saying when you have sex. Now here's the problem in society. People are having sex with lots of people and so they're saying with their body what they're not saying with the rest of their life. They break the language. It's like, the, um, you know, cry wolf. The guy cried wolf so many times no one, no, no one believes him any longer. And the reason no one trusts anyone anymore in relationships in Edinburgh is everyone's had too much sex. That's why. They've broken the language. Physically, sex is you saying what you are saying verbally in covenant. You should be saying exactly the same. That you are saying with your money, with your whole heart, with your whole being, I'm totally exclusively yours, as well as with your sex. If you say it just with sex and without everything else, it ruins people's lives. It was never meant outside of the context of covenant. So people say, well, but how will we know if we're going to be sexually compatible unless we sleep around? How, you know, how, how will I know if we're going to be sexually compatible? You know, that's just a total myth that made up by perverts. <laughs> I didn't even read that in a book. I just came up with that quote myself. <laughs> you know, the fact is, if you've been married for 25 years, your bodies have changed several times in that 25 years. So even if you were sexually compatible at the beginning, you've changed. 
right? So if you're going to base sexual compatibility as the test of whether or not you're going to be right for each other, you'll last four years. I love this quote by the author, Lewis Smeads. He said, as an elderly man, he said this, my wife has lasted, uh, has lived with me, sorry, let me say it again. My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of the five were me. In other words, I've changed five times since we were married. So sexual compatibility, that's just a nonsense excuse, you pervert. How regular should sex be in a marriage? Well, if covenant is what sex is about, then sex is also about reinforcing the covenant you have. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 says, Stop depriving each one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Apostle Paul encourages regular sex in the context of marriage. Regular sex. And this is not the sex talk that's coming in a, is it next week or a couple of weeks' time. Um, but we will talk in more detail about that. But you need to understand that regular sex in the context of Christian marriage is absolutely fantastic. And constant denial will damage. That's what Paul says. Satan might tempt you. You're leaving yourself vulnerable, constant denial. AOL um, conducted a survey of 60,000 fathers. 79% of them said they wanted more sex. 60% admitted to viewing porn on a regular basis. And 40% said that their sexual advances were rejected at least once a week. Those figures correlate. If there's constant denial in a marriage, it leaves you vulnerable to temptation. And the statistics back that up. By the way, Constant denial in a marriage is not an excuse to go look at porn or go masturbate. You've got to repent for that. But equally, there needs to be a mutual understanding that in a marriage, hey, we've committed ourselves to each other. Now, I, want to, I also want to make it clear that marriage is a journey, isn't it? And sometimes there are challenges where you're emotionally affected or sometimes there are challenges where you're physically affected. Life goes in seasons. So what, what is regular in one season might not be regular in another season. And there might be seasons where there's no sex for months because, you know, children come along or health issues. And you know what? Hey, sex isn't the foundation of your relationship. Covenant is. So that's it. I mean, it's not like, all right, I quit now. No, no. You stay with it. Never use sex as a reward and never use withhold sex as a punishment. These are the kind of things that damage relationship. Let sex be really spontaneous and fun and creative and exciting. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks' time. He said to her, shall we try different swapping positions tonight? And she said, okay, that's a good idea. You stand at the ironing board while I sit in the sofa and fart all night. <laughs> anyway, that's just a silly joke. Just to lighten the atmosphere, just to lighten the atmosphere. And finally, fourthly, one is being equally yoked when he says they shall become one flesh, I think God's referring to be equally yoked. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship can light have with darkness? Listen, the point is this, the biggest agenda of your soul should be God. The biggest passion of your soul should be God. And if you're pursuing God and they're not pursuing God, listen, it's not just about, oh, I must protect my morality from this bad person. No, what are you talking about? It, you're also protecting them from going the wrong track as well. If someone's not living for God and you're living for God, it's going to damage both them and you. It's not just about you. It's going to damage them as well. 
there's no future in a relationship where God isn't center. Don't kid yourself on. That doesn't mean that the person you like who isn't yet a Christian could not become a Christian. Of course they can. There are many stories of people coming to faith. But listen, whatever happens, don't be careful how you play that hands. Because they might make a shallow commitment in order to get you. And then you're going to end up, you're going to have to live with that. Trust me, short term, this is painful. But long term, you will not regret waiting for the right person. Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. We can get so clouded in our judgment when we're, if you're around the wrong person, you end up in bad places. And verse 25 in closing. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Key for relationships is no hidden areas. Absolute transparency. Nakedness before each other. Secrets. Affairs. Financial mismanagements that are kept under wraps. These are the things that undermine and erodes relationships. You have to have a brutal honesty in your relationships. Has to be there. If you're carrying secrets, if you're dealing with things that you're not bringing out in the open or not living in the light, then it's time to live in the light. Short-term pain, long-term gain. And if you need to go on a journey where you live in the light, why not talk to one of the pastors in the church here? Or talk to your small group leader, talk to someone you trust, bring something into the light and go on a journey of accountability to bring a place of freedom in your life. And you know what? When it comes to someone breaking your heart or breaking trust, you need to understand that forgiveness is given, but trust must be earned. If you've broken someone's trust, you need to understand that they can forgive you, but it might take a while for them to trust you. And you shouldn't demand that that speeds up. That might take time. When sin came into the world, this is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 is where mankind's rejected God. When mankind rejected the ultimate relationship, relationship with God, every other relationship fell apart. Genesis chapter 3, we rejected our relationship with God. Genesis chapter 4, there was polygamy. Genesis chapter 9, there was evil words and thoughts. Genesis chapter 16, we find adultery. Genesis chapter 19, there was homosexual sex. Genesis 34, there was fornication and rape. Genesis chapter 38, there was incest and prostitution. Genesis chapter 39, there was seduction. All the way through the book of Genesis, there was a cascade of disasters in relationships after Genesis chapter 3, which was the ultimate relationship. Our relationship between us and God was severed. The ultimate relationship that will fuel every relationship you've got is a relationship with God himself. Jesus hung naked on a cross to pay the price for your shame, to pay the price for your sin, to pay the price for your brokenness so that you can be reunited into a relationship that you were created to have with God himself. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for every person in this room. You know our lives, you know our journey. God, I realize tonight for for some people, what we've shared on tonight has actually been really hard for them. That it's a painful thing because relationships have for them have, they have so many regrets and they have so many upsets. And God, I want to say thank you that not only do you give us a brilliant standard, you also have amazing grace for every situation in this room. Jesus, you specialized at bringing into your, your companionship group broken people. 
I love how the disciples and the women who followed you, Jesus, were broken people, broken people who had gone through broken relationships and you mended their lives and mended their relationships and you brought them to the ultimate relationship. Thank you for the amazing grace you have for everyone in this room. Pray for those who are carrying shame or regret in the area of marriage or relationships. Pray for those who had lots of sex outside of marriage. Pray for those who have been divorced and feel the anguish and pain in their souls. Pray for those, God, who have got various regrets and anguishes. And I pray, God, for the peace of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God to flow. God, we can't change our past, but with God's help, we can build strongly for the future. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray this. Uh, Thanks so much for sticking around. Um, We're going to go for probably about an hour if we've got enough questions, and I think we will. Um, So guys, thank you so much uh, for sticking around. Um, Just so I know, we may not get through all the questions tonight. Um, So if you have any questions that are unanswered, um, we're actually going to do this again, um, because we figure out figure as we go through this series, more questions are going to come up. Um, so the next time we do this is the 26th of November, and that'll be our last night of the hashtag How to Relationship series. But as you can see behind me, there is a phone number, and you, during this time, if you're thinking of questions, please just text in. I'm going to get them here, but don't worry. I don't know who you are when it comes through. Um, so please do send through your questions. It's really helpful. Otherwise, we're just going to talk uh, at you. Um, so it would be great to hear your questions and it, we might, we'll do some live questions as well as we go through that time you guys ready? Pete are you ready? yeah <laughs> okay Okay. cool um, so first question um, why do you think there could be an imbalance and is there an imbalance between the amount of single women and single men in church and if there's an imbalance could we address that and how do we go about that? it's a great question I, I think Sadly, uh, much of the, the Western church has become large, larger percentage women and fewer percentage men. And uh, I think there are various reasons for that. I think we've, we've feminized a lot of church and, um, and we've, we've, kind of, we've made it in such a way that guys can't relate to it as much. I think that's, that's one of the issues. Um, I don't think that's the case globally. I think globally it's a different picture, but certainly... In some of the Western churches, that's been the case. The good news is that historically, our church hasn't been that. The st- having looked at the statistics, our statistics haven't been the same as most Western churches. We've had a higher percentage of men, although we still have more women than men. The percentage is a lot closer to the 50-50 than in in the typical Western church, which is good news. It's because our leaders are so masculine. Uh, that's why. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, there's a different situation there, and you know. And I understand that that makes, if, if you're a single girl and you're looking for a guy, that makes the odds less. Um, and I, I would just encourage you, first of all, walk with your convictions and trust God, whether you're a man or a woman looking for a relationship. And ultimately, God will do for you what God will promise he will do for you. And you can have, tr- you can have absolute faith in him for that. Everyone who is married would look back and say, God orchestrated that whole deal. God was in that. And so the testimony will be no different when it comes to you. You will believe God and in the right time, you will meet the right person. And that, that's, that's not just a, you shouldn't just feel at the mercy of waiting on God as if that's, that's something to be bad. That's not, that's not it's a good thing. 
but you should also be proactive yourself. So trusting God doesn't mean you don't make an effort. Uh, I mean that for guys and girls. You know, guys, wear aftershave. Uh, get a job. Take responsibility. Um, don't be a fool. Uh, women, you know, uh, dress cool. Don't dress inappropriately to get the wrong kind of guy. Be sensible. Go out there, get to know each other. Go on cool holidays. Get to, you know, go, go, on, go on singles holidays. Do dating websites by all means. Uh, come to Sunday nights. I don't know. Uh, be in small group. The be- one of the best environments to meet uh, a partner is in, is in the church environment. So don't be unproactive. Be full of faith, but also be proactive. And you, you know, faith sometimes needs arms and legs. So um, hope that helps. That's great. Thank you. Um, okay, next question. Um, it's about the hashtag MeToo campaign. Has anyone heard, heard of the hashtag MeToo campaign? You have to explain it, Dan. Yeah, I'll explain it. So I just want to for me as well. Okay. So the hashtag MeToo campaign has been in social media and on the news um, about as a response to especially women suffering from uh, unwanted sexual advances in the workplace, harassment, um, things like that. And it's been a, a way of people being able to share their story or in standing in solidarity against um, that. Um, and so uh, there's probably many people that have come along to church and um, you may have had that experience um, when you've been working or in different situations in life. Um, obviously, it can be a very difficult uh, emotional thing and a hurtful thing. Um, so as a church, how can we help people? Um, is there policies? Who do we chat to? What's the procedures? If, if that's an experience that we've had ourselves or I guess generally, how do we raise awareness about that kind of thing? Okay, I mean, that's a hugely important subject. For some of you here, that's a very, very personal subject. And I guess um, it ranges from anything from un, you know, unwanted contact with the opposite sex where they just, they're imposing themselves on you in a way that's just not nice all the way through to outright uh, full-on abuse. And there's a huge spectrum there. And, and I'm guessing in this room, there's, there's experiences of all of those things. And I think in the church environment, there is a safety where these things can be journeyed. Uh, first of all, we have a counseling service in the church. Not everyone's aware of that. We have trained counselors. And so if you've been in a situation where you've experienced abuse, um, please contact the church and we will connect you with the support that's available. You don't need to, when you contact us, you don't need to tell us what your issue is. You just need to say, I would like to speak to one of the counselling team. You can use the welcome cards in your seats to make that contact. Uh, a lot of, also, a lot of support is available through the pastoral team. We have a phenomenal team of pastors. In each location, we have location pastors. And uh, we have a team of people, men and women, who will be available to talk with you. If you want to request an appointment specifically with a man or specifically with a woman, we can have that appointment available to you. And many of our pastoral team have worked with people through abuse issues. Um, and I also have to say, as, many as, as there are as many abuse stories as there are abuser stories, and that's the unspoken one, that there are some here who not just have been abused, but there are some here who have abused others. That's the reality. And um, I think we've got to go a bit deeper to the root issues of some of these things. The reality is the rise, I think there has been a rise in sexual abuse in our society. And that directly links to the rise of explicit material going out uh, through, you know, way back in the day with Hugh Hefner and the Playboy all the way through to going online with online pornography. Um, Online pornography is creating fantasy worlds in people's minds, both men and women. Uh, and that they have to go somewhere with that. 
And often that, almost every time I would say, the abuse that you have suffered probably links to fantasies in people's heads, which most likely will have been sown by seeds coming through pornography. And so while we want to deal with the fruit of the issues, we also want to deal with the root of the issues. And so I touched on this briefly in our, in our session, but if you're struggling with pornography addiction, or even if you wouldn't classify it as an addiction, you just have a, you're there regularly, you know, whether you call it an addiction or not, it is an unhealthy thing for your soul. It isn't, isn't even a reality. Half the people you're looking at don't even look like that in reality. Um, you need to understand that there's something damaging your soul there and you can get help with that. And the way you deal with the fruit of that through accountability. So you, you bring it into the light. You don't carry it in shadows anymore. You confess it. You bring it into the open. You bring it into the open, maybe first of all with one of the pastoral team. But then you bring it into the open with your spouse if you're married. That's very important. Very hard, but very important. And then having brought it in the open, that's, you deal with the fruit with accountability, but you deal with the root with truth. Jesus says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The reason behaviors, negative behaviors happen in people's lives is because somewhere down the line, if you follow it back, there's a lie you believed. You know, the lie might have been, this will bring satisfaction, or this will bring joy, or this will bring relief, or whatever the lie was, I don't know. But you believe a lie, and it leads to the fruit of behavior. And the only way you can deal with the fruit is by dealing with the root and replace the lie with the truth of God's word and finding great delight in God. And then as you have finding a delight in God and finding truth that sets you free, then you can, that, that, that truly sets you free, not just restrict your behavior with accountability. So you need both uh, an accountability journey and a truth journey, and that will help you. And we can help you with that journey. Um, but certainly if you're a victim of abuse, we want to also provide support and provision for you. Talk to one of the pastoral team. And as I say, we have counsellors as well available. We'd be very happy to help you with that. It's a free counselling service. So don't feel you've got to, you have to have some sort of, you know, large amount of money to pay for what's available. It's a free service. So. Thanks, Pete. And I think quite often when there's things that have been going on in our lives, whether it's something like pornography or something um, that's been done to us or we've done to others, actually we feel like we're going to get judged, we're going to be rejected by people. Um, we believe in the radical grace of God. Um, and so while we don't agree with things, or, but we also want to help people and extend grace. So, if, for example, if you do struggle with pornography, um, this is a safe environment to be able to share that. So don't share it with everybody straight off. But if you're like, okay, I've got something to me, expose it. Expose it. It's not worth not talking about it. Um, so please do come chat to someone um, about that. Cool. Okay, another question. And then after this question, we'll maybe take a, a live question if, if you want to share with us one of your questions as well. Um, so this is probably quite a specific question, but maybe we can talk a little bit generally about it as well as this. Um, how do you forgive uh, your father for cheating on your mother, especially if it was a long time ago? Um, and obviously that has that some knock-on effect. So how do we extend that forgiveness when it's been something really personal in that environment? Wow. Well, I can't, I can't answer that from a place of experience because I haven't had that experience. My, my father and my mother were faithful to each other as far as I know and my mother's no longer alive. So I, I, can't, I can't, from a place of empathy, say that I've been there, I haven't been there. But I guess in many ways we've all had to forgive at different times. And some forgiveness has just come easy. Yeah, water off a duck's back, I forgive you. Other times forgiveness comes really hard. And what you're describing, whoever asked that question, is a really hard, that's a hard, that's a tough gig. How do you forgive in that situation? And the Bible gives us the answer. You remember when Peter came to Jesus and said, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Jesus said, and he said, seven, seven times? 
Peter thought he was being generous. And Jesus said, no, 70 times 7. And the answer wasn't 490 or whatever it is. The answer was, who's counting? And Jesus' answer was based on exactly how God forgives us. And then he goes on and tells a parable. He said, suppose one of you, you know, <clears throat> has a master and the master demands from his servant that he pay back what he's due. And, and, so the, and, the, and the servant begs to be forgiven of the debt. It's a huge debt. And, uh, and the, the master forgives him the debt. And it's a 10,000 talent debt. And then that person who's been forgiven of the debt immediately goes out and finds someone else who owes him 100 silver coins of debt. And the man begs to be forgiven for the debt and the person doesn't offer mercy. And uh, then Jesus concludes the parable by saying that that person who didn't show mercy, then he was judged. And the point that Jesus was making is this. When you realize the scale of God's forgiveness towards you, that actually empowers you to show forgiveness towards someone else. And when Jesus used the talents, he talks about the 10,000 talent debt. If you actually did that in modern day money, it's talking about millions, millions of pounds worth of debt. An insurmountable debt. He's describing a man-to-God debt. And then when he talks about the man-to-man debt, it's, it's in the hundreds. It's a smaller amount. It's still something. It's not, not nothing. But it isn't anything compared to the scale of debt. And so here's the reality. You might sin against me and I might find that really hard. But if I was actually to put it in the scales to, to, and measured it up to the, the scale of my sin against God, boom, my sin against God would outweigh by far anything that any human being has ever, even the cruelest thing that anyone could have done to me, would, be not, would pale into insignificance compared to my sin against God. And God forgave me that at his own expense. And when I, when I meditate on that grace and when that grace impacts me and when I'm living with such a gratefulness for that grace, that actually empowers me to show grace to others. How could I not? That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, you will be. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And here's the thing. Sometimes you don't want to forgive someone because almost you're thinking they don't deserve it. You know, almost like you're punishing them by not forgiving them. I'm going to withhold forgiveness from them, almost like a punishment. But the truth is this. It doesn't affect them one iota, but it affects you a lot. It eats you up on the inside. You know, when you swallow it, your stomach keeps score. You end up having all sorts of bitterness and health issues. Deal, you know, the only way to you have to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're saying that what they did was okay. That's really important for you to know that. Just because you forgive someone who's done something terrible, or whether it's a, a, an affair issue, or you're not saying, oh, that's okay. When you forgive them, you're not saying it's okay. It's not okay. What you're saying is, I forgive you. It no longer affects me. You're saying, I release you. I, I, I forgive you. I bless you. That's what you're doing. And do you know what? Sometimes your emotions will have to catch up with that decision. Sometimes forgiveness will be a, just a choice based on gritted teeth. I'm going to forgive you because I know God's forgiven me. I, okay, I forgive you. I choose to do that. You don't feel like it. You might not feel like it for years. But don't let your emotions make your decisions for you and become a bitter, twisted person. It will ruin you. Don't let their mistake become your problem. Release them, forgive them, make the choice to do that and let the emotions catch up. And the way, one of the ways that your emotions will catch up quicker is by every morning, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you. So just every day, okay, God, that really hurt. But today I pray your blessing on that person who hurt me. Bless them. Keep them, protect them, soften their heart. 
tell you what, you pray that enough, eventually the bitterness and the, the anger and the revenge feelings will go. And God will help you with that. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave us. Thanks, Pete. Okay, well, we're going to have another question. Um, so if you've got a question that we've not yet talked about, I've got loads of things. We've talked a little bit about pornography and we're getting quite a few questions coming in about that. Um, but if you have a question just right now, you want to put up your hand and ask it. Um, Emily's got a microphone. Um, so has anyone got a question they want to ask? Or we're just going to continue going through this? Okay, cool. Well, shall we continue? Oh, there's a question oh. there. Ah, Grant. <laughs> So it was incredibly moving to hear the question that was just asked. Um, and Peter, your answer is very helpful that we've got to forgive. Sometimes we can't see evidence that the sin is changing. The sin is just going on yeah. and on and on. Yeah. And so it's, it's actually all about me forgiving, isn't it? Absolutely. So that I'm healed. Yeah. But the sinner, sometimes we're being offended the Absolutely. whole time. So yeah. what do we do? We well, still have to forgive. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you remember Jesus on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He didn't say that because they were repenting. They were still hurling abuse at him. They were still fully intending, to, they were glad that he was being murdered. And even without them repenting, and this, and this is good news, this puts the power in your, balls in your court. You have power here. You don't need to wait for them to repent before you forgive. That's good news. You're, you, you're the one in control here. They, you're not at the mercy of whether they repent or not. Jesus was able to forgive them even before they repented. And that's, that's a very, very powerful truth. No, it's, it's a great question. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm going to summarize the next question. Is masturbation a sin? Okay. So, um, the Bible says not much about this. <laughs> You know, there aren't many Bible verses about masturbation. There's a lot of Bible verses that speak about lust. The Bible's emphasis is that sex is for within the context of marriage. And I would include within that things like masturbation. That, that can be something a couple does with each other. That can be something that is part of foreplay or enjoyment of each other's bodies in the context of covenant. But the Bible doesn't really make provision for sex outside of marriage. But it also doesn't say anything about specifically about masturbation. You know, some people have said, you know, okay, that verse that says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. All right. But what if you're left-handed? Okay, so yeah, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know if that if that stands here. But the, the issue is this: I think any. So therefore, I think when it's an issue like this, I think it's a conscience issue, and I think you've got to. Avoid anything that stirs lust in your soul. You know, I'm, I'm not saying don't have human desire. That's good. That's, that's God-given. But you have to understand that everything that God gave us has been distorted by sin. Everything. You know, God-given passion has been warped to become lust. Okay, that's, that's what happens. God-given passions become warped and become envy and become all, all sorts of God-given desires have been warped by sin. So, Lust, avoid anything that causes lust. Avoid anything that becomes idolatrous. Avoid anything that becomes habitual or addictive. You should be in control, not being controlled by. And don't kid yourself on by this. Um, I used to be habitually addicted to masturbation. And when I was 15, 16 years old, when I got baptized, I, I literally had a moment where I, that God did something then 
where for a period of six or seven months, I couldn't physically have an erection. Tumbleweed moment. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't physically have an erection. So I actually couldn't physically masturbate. For, you know, it's just, and the desire left. And God, God dealt with something there because actually for me it was an addiction. Um, thank the Lord that changed, that, that the issue was broken, and then everything returned, you know, normal service resumes. Um, but, but for me, God had to set me free from something that was addictive, and God broke the back of that. So I, personally, I don't believe it's acceptable. I believe it's a sin. And I believe it's something that needs to be, yeah, I, th- I, th- I don't think Jesus would have done that. Um, and for me, that's my standard. So it doesn't mean that we're not human and we don't st- struggle with these things. But to accept it as, as, as okay, I don't think is right. That's for me. Okay. Thanks for your honesty, Pete. Um, you tell your story, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've told mine, man. You tell you. Yeah. Roving mic time. Let's go around everybody. Yeah. Uh, Start with you, Dan. No, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Do you want? No. <laughs> Maybe we can come back to that later. Um, slightly, slightly different topic. Um, so how do you deal with some of the maybe the, the, the challenges and the issues come with being single? So, for example, a sense of loneliness or isolation. If, that's, if you want to be married, yeah, that's not the right time. How do you start to deal with those, those things, those, those feelings and desires that come up? That's, again, that's a really honest question. And again, it's, it, hey, it's easy for me to answer. I'm a married guy, and so I, I, I don't want to answer this glibly. But let me answer this genuinely. You need both divine relationship and you need human relationship. You need that. Whether you're married or not, you need divine relationship and you need human relationship. You need to have not just a tick, I'm a Christian relationship with God. You need to have an authentic relationship with God. When's the last time you cried in his presence? When's the last time you you read his word and and something jumped off the page and God, you just spoke to me? I, want, I don't want you to piggyback on someone else's faith or come to a church where people have faith. I want you to have that kind of faith. I want you to have experiences with God, not just a theory of God. I want you to know him and have experiences of God. I want that for you. And as you have that, I tell you, for me, that's, that's my delight. That's my, I'm blessed with the family, I really am. But I don't find my ultimate delight in anything other than in God. And I want you to have that as well. You can have that, whether you're married or single. And that will help you through every season of life. And actually, if you're not married, that prepares you. That's the best preparation you can be. The best preparation you can have for marriage is being totally satisfied in God. So that's, and I'm not, that's not a glib answer. That's a genuine answer. That's a helpful answer. That's, a, that's the best answer you will get. No one's going to be the answer. Because it's true. But then you also need human relationship. Everyone needs that. Introverts don't need that as much. Extroverts need that more. But whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, everyone needs people. Whether even, even whether it's an emotional need or not, beyond that, you need it to become all that God wants you to be. Fact. I can't be all that God wants me to be without others around me. I, I thank God for my wife. I thank God she completes me. I thank God for my leadership team. People like Dan and others in, in the church. I cannot do church leadership without them. I can't. The church under my leadership got to a certain size but it took me and a team to shift it onto the next stage in our journey I need a team you need a team so do you know what in a big church you've got to make that happen for yourself don't, don't, don't wait for others to make it happen for you 
Don't say, all right, hey, where are my friends? Where are all the people? No, you go make it happen. You go find them. You, you join a small group. Be proactive. Don't, don't wait around for others to think of you. You think of someone else. Friendship is not what happens to you. Friendship is what you initiate for someone else. And that's good. The ball's in your court. You have power. You're not at the mercy of loneliness. Go and make friendship happen. And listen, here's the key. In your friendships, take more of an interest in others. Don't talk too much about yourself. Ask them about them. And I tell you what, you'll have lots of friends. Just take a genuine interest in lots of people. Ask them lots of questions about them. And put yourself in environments where you can just be a blessing. Here's my advice. Get in a team. Serve in a team. Surround yourself with people. You know, Serve as a steward or in the worship team or in the catering team or go out with the homeless team. Make lots of friends. And, and not just make lots of friends. Be a great friend to as many people. You can have as many friends as you want. Just be a good friend to as many people as you want. And be in a small group. Study the Bible together. I tell you, these environments will enrich your life. Um, so hey, there's, there's no ultimate answer to this. And, and that's, even that's not going to take away that ache in your soul. If you're single and there's this genuine God-given desire for marriage, there's still going to be an ache. But the ache won't become an idol. That's important for your survival. It won't become an idol because God is ultimate in relationships. You want to add to that, Dan? Um, yeah, so I remember at different seasons, there are different, I guess, opportunities for friendships as well. So, for example, uh, growing up at school, you kind of automatically have your group of friends. And then I moved to Edinburgh University with a whole bunch of friends. Uh, then at the end of university, um, everybody left Edinburgh that I was really good friends with. And then I was left well, with the question... I was here, Dan. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's, I, I was still... I have never left you, mate. Thanks, Peter. It's like Jesus. He never leaves Are us. Are you saying that I'm um, one of the besties? Um... And so I had to ask the question, how do I actually make friends? It was something that I hadn't really considered before. And I think actually as a society, as we grow in, the, in using social media, we're more connected than ever before. But actually in many ways, we're actually less connected than ever before as well. Um, and so we can't just be friends with people on Facebook. Like none of us can have 1,000 friends and actually be friends. Um, and so I guess picking some specific people, you're like, I want to do life with these people, whether that's in a small group, in a serving team, what that looks like, um, and committing to them as well. And you're not always going to be best friends, click from day one. It does take sometimes a little bit of that effort and investment in asking them more and investing into that relationship as well. It's good, so, um, Okay, um, one question about dating, and actually uh, maybe a little bit after dating. So if you're dating and the dating relationship ends, what happens then if you're part of the same church? Will that work? How could that work? Um, especially when there's lots of emotions going probably on both sides as well. What's the best way to navigate that? Okay. Um, that's a great question. So I, I think if you've done the dating well, then that won't be such a big problem. So if you've done the dating badly, that becomes quite a big problem. So my suggestion is when dating is that you are just wise in how you date. That you, uh, again, we've, we've done some dating talks in this series and there's other dating talks that I've done over the years. If you want a, a dating talk I did years ago, if you go to our Relate series, go into our website, look for search under the Relate series from the Wisdom Books. Uh, we did a, a message on dating there. Did a message in the Genesis series entitled How to Find a Wife. Uh, some advice on dating there. And I think dating done wisely is this, that you're not just dating, 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 dating lots of people. You're actually taking it seriously. You're thinking, hey, you know, is this, is this someone actually, maybe that they could be the right person for me for marriage. You're not just, 
you're not taking it, you're not being too serious, but at the same time, you're not being too unserious. You're not just treating it lightly like the world does. You just date lots of people. You don't do that because then you, you end up with lots of emotions everywhere. And then also you don't give your heart away too quickly. I don't mean that you become guarded, but you just be wise. And also you just surround yourself with some good people. In the, you know, have some good mentors, you know, your parents, church leaders. And, and th- this just keeps all safe. Because you know what happens when you get all caught up in emotions? You sometimes delude yourself. So having some wise people around you is good. Again, being in a small group is going to help. Having people who know you is going to help. Um, so if you do dating well, and, and you don't go too far sexually, again, we, we've, we've, we've done the dating talk, but just let me recap. Don't touch what you ain't got, okay? Think about it. Don't touch what you haven't got. Um, you know, bear in mind, if you've, you've got to, you just got to be wise. If you, the way I see sexual contact is like, I've used this analogy before, sex is like being on a motorway. 70 miles an hour, foot to the floor, you're on. Lots of other things are like the slip road onto the motorway. You know, fondling, you know, stripping, touching, all that kind of stuff. It's the slip road onto the motorway. If you keep going in that slip road, but put your brakes on and reverse back down the slip road without going in the motorway, and you keep doing that lots of times, either eventually you're going to end up on the motorway without realizing it. Is this making any sense? Am I, am I, am I being too analogous here? Okay. But the point is this, if you're dating and you're just constantly jumping in that slip road and you're undressing each other, you're doing everything apart from the ultimate act of sex, then actually when you break up, then you're going to be emotionally all over the place because chemicals have got going in your body that should not have got going. The Song of Solomon describes it this way, do not awaken love until it is ready. That's, that's how the Song of Solomon describes it. Don't awaken that part of your life yet. Hold it. Don't let that horse bolt. Hold it. Hold its reins. There will come a point where you can just let the reins go and get on that motorway and enjoy it lots. But the time hasn't come. And so keep, keep, keep sexual activity appropriate when you're dating and you know all the other things I've said. And then if the breakup happens, then it's not going to be as d- damaging as it could have been. And sure, it'll be a bit hard. We're a multi-location church. Just go to two different locations. There we are. Problem solved. <laughs> I remember um, hearing about your motorway analogy the first time, and I've never thought of motorways the same ever since. Um, and also, I think when you're, th- you're thinking about, oh, should I, should I change church or that kind of thing, please do talk to someone first before making that kind of decision. Um, get some advice, some objective perspectives on uh, where you're at and what you should be doing. Um, I think that's helpful. Okay, next question. Talking about pornography again. Um, in a, a relationship, if you find out what the other person, if they're watching, looking at porn, um, in a dating, but I guess also in a, a married situation, how do you start to navigate that? Um, is that a case where you, right, let's break up, or how do you walk that through? Yeah. Uh, probably both a dating context, but then also in a marriage context as well. Okay. I mean, there's, there's no hope unless there's repentance. You know, you have different groupings of people. You have people who struggle with porn, and they hate that they struggle. Okay, let me use an analogy again. Are you a pig or a lamb? The pig and the lamb both fall into mud. But the lamb desperately wants out of the mud. But the pig just wallows in the mud while he's down. So are you a pig or a lamb? You know, you may slip, you may fall in an area. But does it devastate you? Or actually, I'll just go do it again. Are you a pig or a lamb? So where's your heart at? And so if, if you're dating someone and they're battling with something, that's very different 
to them actively entertaining something and justifying it. So don't justify your sin. Repent of your sin. And it is a sin, just to be really clear on that. It isn't, I don't care what psychologist has told you it's helpful for your soul. It's damaging for your soul. It ruins lives. It's damaging. Very, very damaging. And very, very addictive. So you've got to repent. There's no repentance. There's no hope. What you hope is, listen, whether, if you've caught them in the act of doing that, okay, ask yourself, are they a pig or a lamb? Let's, let's, let's let the grace of God work. May God give them the ability to say, okay, I repent. I've blown it here. What can I do? As soon as you've got that attitude, there's hope. If there's a, hey, it's, it's my thing. You don't need to, you know, there's no hope. So look for repentance. If there's repentance, here's what I'd encourage you. If you're aware that someone you're dating or, or your spouse is battling with that, encourage them. Listen, you need to bring that into the light. You need to go and talk to one of the pastors in the church and speak to them. And you know, we touched on this a moment ago, there's a fear in people's minds. If I say I have a struggle in that area, they're going to reject me. You know, I have, I've had church leaders in this church come to me and say, I'm struggling with pornography. And do you know what? They're still church leaders. They haven't been removed from leadership. Now, if they had gone out and actively been in strip clubs, or then they wouldn't be in church leadership. They'd be removed for a season, and they'd go on a restoration journey. I get that. But I've had people who struggle with that, and they're and they've been lambs. And they've journeyed forward and they've taken responsibility and we've gone on an accountability journey and we've resolved it. You know, all of our church staff, we've got 21 people on church staff, all of them, as a prerequisite to being on staff, have to have covenant eyes, internet monitoring software on all their computers. We just, not because everyone's got problems, but because we're trying to preempt any problems. I, on a regular basis, hold a few pastors in various parts of the country accountable because they battle in this area. So don't have this fear in your minds that I can't be honest with this, I'll be rejected. We understand the radical grace of God. But we, that isn't, that's not an excuse to sin. That's an excuse to repent. That's an excuse to live holier because of the great love and grace and unconditional acceptance of God. Out of gratitude, we want to live holy. And uh, that's what I want for you people. So yeah, just bring it into the open and encourage them to bring it into the open. Absolutely. Um, seeing people come free of pornography is one of my passions. Um, it's something that really held me back as a teenager when I was about 12, 13, becoming, looking back now, actually addicted until I was 18. And it was something that really held me back in my walk with God, uh, something that really affected my spiritual. I hadn't realized it, but looking back, I can totally see that. Um, and actually, a few weeks ago, uh, me, Graham, and Mark uh, were all on the pastoral team. We went to a conference all about how does the church deal with pornography, because it's such, such an issue. Um, I rarely, rarely met someone that doesn't struggle in some, some way with that kind of thing. Um, Tell them the figures, the men and women figures, because it's, 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 it's a very different statistic to what it used to be. Um, yeah, so off the top of my head. Um, it, it, was, it was something about 79-80% of men um, look or watch, it, watch porn every month. Um, and the statistics are for women you may think it's a guy problem, it is not it is a woman problem as well and there's something about between 60 and 70% of women as well in the, um, that look watch um, something like pornography um, every month and just it's really heartbreaking because uh, it's something that can really undermine your walk with God your walk with others um, please don't delay dealing with it, uh, deal with it um, the question I guess was specific about dating, uh, if, the, if you have Dating, issues in dating, lust, whatever is, addiction. If you're dating, being married is not the solution to that. Mm-hmm. You, whatever problems you have in dating, you're going to bring them into Absolutely. marriage. 
and it's not then it's not going to be your problem it's going to be our problem um, and so if there's something like coming up please deal with it before you start actually let's get engaged deal with it first uh, it means you might have to take pause on the relationship it might take a little bit longer than you wanted um, but it's worth dealing with things before you actually get married um, especially in that contact with things like porn um, absolutely we have a marriage preparation course in the church for anyone getting married in the church we we work with them very strongly we have a, a, a course that we take them through in preparation for marriage and during that course we'll tackle some of these issues and talk about being honest and being open and we'll also assign mentors to the couple who, so part of the course is done as a group several couples who are getting married or preparing to get married but then there's also uh, mentoring so, so a couple with couple meeting up to mentor and journey through some of these issues so it's, we want to do everything we can to preempt some of these issues and build strong absolutely um I've got a whole bunch of resources, websites that, be, that are helpful. Uh, one that looks really good is one called Click to Kick. Uh, it's an accountability online group where you can go through a course, be accountable about uh, pornography and that addiction side of it, um, and help you come free of that as well. Can you post them, Dan, on yeah, Facebook so or social media straight after this? Yeah, um, yeah, and I've got a book called Confronting Porn. Um, really helpful. Um, you can look online for that as well. But yeah, I can post, post your, your Twitter things. links so people know. I do use really Twitter at the moment. Okay. Uh, but I'll put them on Instagram. Um, okay. My Instagram is... that is, cooler, is it? It's, it's so much cooler. Okay. Is it cooler? Okay. <laughs> I feel affirmed. Um, Don't listen to them. <laughs> Don't listen to them. Uh, so at Dan Everett 90 is my Instagram. Um, and I'll post stuff on there and on Facebook as well. Um, cool. Okay, next question. Um, how, how do you deal with depression within our relationship? I have depression and I'm scared to share with the person that I'm with. Can I answer that? You answer that, yeah. I would love to answer that because that is exactly where I have been at. Um, it is a massive struggle. Mental health is something that as a church we need to talk about. Um, society struggles in so many ways with depression. Statistics are mental. Like, it's like one in four people every year um, struggle with some sort of uh, mental depression or mental health uh, depression, anxiety, these things are just rife in our society. And it's not going away. It's actually increasing, I think. Um, I, know, I'm, I know many of you have struggled in different areas. Um, I've struggled with depression um, over the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, it's been great. Uh, Emily, me and Emily have been going out for the last three years. And it's something that we've had to journey through together, uh, which is not easy. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. <laughs> um, and so it, it's tough. It's tough. Um, really tough sometimes. And so... Um, yeah, you learn to show grace and forgiveness. Sometimes you do get it wrong. Um, but it's not something you can keep hidden. One way or the other, eventually it'll come out. If you're serious about the relationship, you're dating and you're thinking, let's get married, it'll be something that's another thing you need to talk about. This is what, what's actually going on in my mind, my heart. Um, and you know what? It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing that you struggle with. If you're full of Christ, you are a child of God who struggles with depression. You are a child of God who struggles with mental health. It's not def your definition of who you are. So your, your illness is not your identity. You know, it's not, it's not your, your, who you are, your character. Actually, it's something that's affecting you and it's a real thing. Um, and so there's also lots of resources out there, lots of people to talk to. I'm happy. If that's specific, yeah, I'd love to chat with you after. Um, chat it through. Um, but yeah, but it's, we believe this is a safe place. And also, if, if you're with someone dating and... The, that's not someone you can share with, then 
there's probably a question about the dating relationship, I think. If you're not able to share everything with them, not, maybe not date one, that's probably too intense. Um, here's all my problems. No, don't, don't do that. But if you're thinking, taking this relationship seriously, you think maybe actually this could go somewhere, this could, we could get married, it's time to start sharing those kinds of things. I mean, the only thing I would add, what, what you said is great, Dan. The only thing I would add is that actually, if you're with someone who's struggling with depression, thank God they're with someone. You know, so actually sometimes the, the worst thing that people can do when they're struggling with these things is isolate themselves. It's what depression makes people want to do. They want to curl up and be isolated. But it's the very thing that will compound the issue. So actually to have yourself in community, and that community might be your girlfriend or your husband's or your, or your spouse, or, or, or it might be your small group community or you journey it through with someone. But not isolating yourself is so important. Isolation actually perpetuates the issue, even though you don't want to be around people. Sometimes it's the last place you want to be is in church, singing songs. And yet it's probably the best place you could be. And so it's putting yourself in environments where you're not isolated and with others. And in a, in a relationship, actually, you know, great marriages or great relationships doesn't mean it's always been easy. It just means that God's helped you through the hard times, all right? You've got great people in the Bible who I think King David struggled with depression. Have you read some of the Psalms? You know, I think there's a lot of depression going on in the Psalms. And yet, he was a great man. So, great people doesn't mean they've had necessarily an easy ride. Yeah, and I think maybe we've mentioned before, don't make decisions based on how you feel, your emotions. Uh, make decisions based on faith and not fear. And so, when you're thinking about relationships and dating and marriage and those kinds of things, don't base it on your feelings and how you feel that'll change if you're having a really bad depression day. Um, that's going to affect your relationship or how you feel about the relationship. But actually, do, do and follow God and what he says. Um, and that's the best, the best way to sort of navigate those things as well as doing it in, in community as well. Um, let's just take a moment. If you've got a, a follow-up question or a question that's not been answered yet, um, cool. Um, is this got a question? Just... That's on the back of the, the question we talked about regarding the porn. I'm not aiming at on porn, I'm aiming at on any kind of addiction. When you s described whether you're a lamb or a pig, and you know the repentance and and all that. So, what's the situation if the repentance is there, or it seems like it's there, and you know there is a, there's always a confession and always a repentance, but the sin is a cycle, so it just carries on, carries on, carries on, and there's no change in the behavior. So it seems like there is no fruit yeah. um, coming out. But it seems like a genuine, you know, repentance from, from yeah. the person. How do you deal with that? Okay, so that's a very good question. Thank you. I, I think, you know, forgiveness is, should always be offered. Always. But trust needs to be earned. So you can forgive someone because there's a genuine, genuine heartfelt, I am deeply sorry. But trust needs to be earned. And if, now the thing is our relationship with God never changes. But sometimes our relationship with people must change. So if, if, if there's a couple and the wife or the husband keep addictively pursuing an agenda, even if they're gutted about it, even if they're deeply sorry, there comes a point where yeah, forgiveness keeps being offered, but now it becomes a trust issue. And this needs to be a journey. Sometimes, for example, I, I've actually advised couples that they need to separate while they journey that through. doesn't mean they divorce, but they separate 
to give the guy or the girl space to journey that thing through. Sometimes it is go to a rehab. Sometimes it is go on this course, get help. But you separate and you journey it through and give space to journey it through. Sometimes, sadly, that ends in actually, even though I know you're deeply remorseful, there is no change. And so while God doesn't reject you and I don't reject you and I forgive you, we can't have a marriage or we can't continue dating or the relationship must change because forgiveness is given but trust must be earned. And um, sadly, sometimes the right outcome is, is a separation. Um, and I think as well, sometimes the issue is not always the issue that's obvious. So for example, pornography, is, if it's an addictive issue, sometimes it's a reason that it's become a coping mechanism and sometimes it's hurt or there's things going on much deeper um, and so if there's something like that you could be addicted to porn, drugs um, gambling, lots of things you can get addicted to, people's approval things like that, um, there's always or quite often there's something actually just below the surface as well um, so it's important not just to deal with porn, get the accountability in place, but it's also important to deal with the thing under the surface because otherwise it will, it will keep coming back up um, and so counselling, things like that are really, really helpful with that kind of thing as well. Any, any other follow-up questions or should we have to look yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, it's on the subject of depression. So I made a few notes as you were speaking. Um, if it's a couple, with a bit of luck, the one who isn't depressed should spot the symptoms in the one who is depressed with a bit of luck. They'll either not want to get out of bed or they'll immerse themselves in something that's of no help whatsoever. So it could be spottable. Now, if it's spottable, then there are things the other partner can do some of these things are make sure that the person who is depressed can follow up on things that they actually like doing. Because I believe that depression attacks when you're not doing something you enjoy. So if your other partner has said to you, okay, why don't we go and do such and such, with a bit of luck, you can't be depressed while you're doing that thing you like. The longer that you go through these things that you actually enjoy, the harder it is for depression to come back and hit you, I think. And the last point that I wanted to make was, oh yeah, you may not exactly know why you're depressed. You won't actually know which thing it is that's dragging you down. So if there's a few things that you're unsure about, you, can't, you need to tackle them one at a time and knock them all off. And that's okay. basically what I want to say. So uh, do you have a qu question as well? Or no, is that, that was no? it. Okay. Good that points. was advice, I think. Really good point. Well, can I, can I, I'll just make a couple of comments on depression. Um, depression is different for most people who experience it. There's not always one thing you can um, get. And also, people don't understand depression quite often. We, quite often because we've not talked about it. Uh, people don't always know how to recognize it. Um, and it could manifest in anger or um, looking like they're being lazy. And sometimes people give advice like, just buck your ideas up, cheer up. I don't know if you've ever, if you suffer from depression and you've ever heard that, you know that's, you're just like, you just want to punch people in the face. Um, but actually, if you're not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's something that probably misunderstood. Sometimes if we, we've not educated ourselves, we actually, it's sometimes hard to identify it. And there's different things, warning signs that you can see, uh, thought patterns, different actions, different ways of thinking and feeling. Um, yeah. So I, I think that people can acknowledge it in different ways as well. Um, and so different things will help. One of the challenges of depression is that it's really hard to have the energy or the strength to actually be to do stuff that you know will help. So you should talk to someone about it, but then you don't want to talk to anybody 
and it sort of has that spiral in effect. Um, and it's a massive... And that's where that point challenge. kicks in, so someone else can help with that. Yeah, and so I guess so often we want to tell people what to do. Uh, hey, you're, if you're depressed, this is what you should do. You should eat better, you should go to the gym all the time, get fitter, all that kind of stuff. Good advice, but people don't need to be told what to do. They need to ha have help doing that. Um, so we love to make meals for people who've just had babies in church to bless the parents. We love to do that. Actually, if you're uh, struggling with depression, that's one of the things you cannot do. Cook foods, eat healthily. It's one of the hardest things to do. And so why don't we as a church, when people are struggling with things like that, why don't we cook food for people? Help people in those situations, whether it's someone in your small group. Great um, yeah, and so it's, it's hard to recognize because it's not, if you've got a broken leg, you kind of know you've got a broken leg. But people don't always see if there's something struggling. They forget about people are struggling with that kind of thing as well. Um, is quite often it is invisible. Um, but in relationships as well, for those that know someone or love someone with depression, you've also got to acknowledge it will affect you in some way. It will be hard for you. It won't be easy. Um, it might be, you, you also need to learn how, what depression is and what's best to help, when to ask things, when not to ask, and go on that journey with them as well. Um, and there's 101 things we could talk about depression. But. The only thing I would add is that some depression is purely chemical and it's not linked to any reason. It's not like, oh, I'm depressed about this or depressed about that. There's just no rhyme or reason. It's just a, a chemical wave of emotion. That chemical wave of emotion can be linked to a spiritual realm as well. And I'm not saying that every time it is, but sometimes it is. Um, so sometimes it's not circumstantial at all. It's, it's, just, it's just there. Sometimes prayer shifts it. Sometimes actually need medication. And, and that's okay. I just want to say that from the front of you. It's okay. And you pray as well. But everything you do, you do everything in faith. If you're going to go to the doctors, go to the doctors in faith. If you're going to get prayer at the front, get prayer in faith. In everything, get do it in faith. Sometimes your depression is linked to circumstances that there are circumstances that are depressing you and getting you down, and it's becoming massively exaggerated in your mind, and it's getting blown out of all proportions, and becomes insurmountable. And um, and again, that, that that's that's much easier to identify because there's, there's, there's no there is rhyme and reason to it. There's a cause and effect. Um, and that's where thank God for what Jesus says therefore do not worry about your life and he not only gives you that advice he gives you the power to not worry as well so drawing on his strength rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all men in all things with prayer and supplication present your request to God and then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus therefore brothers whatever is pure noble whatever is good report think on these things the certain disciplines, renewing your mind, thinking on things, giving the burden unto God, rejoicing always, praise often. The last thing you want to do, but praise breaks those prison doors and helps you go free. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last year we did a whole series called Life is a Roller Coaster. Um, and one of the talks we did was on specifically on depression. Um, so if you do want to find out more uh, about, I guess, about a faith perspective on, on depression, how to journey that and how to recognize it, that's available on the website as well. Yeah. Okay, next question. Does age matter when it comes to marriage? How old should you be or could you be? I don't know if someone's like really keen. Okay. Or like, yeah. Okay. Who's, who's quite, no. <laughs> so personally, I don't think age matters. I think maturity matters, but I don't think age matters. You can be young and very mature, or you can be old and very immature. Um, Age, sadly, doesn't mean you're wiser. <laughs> you have a lot of foolish old people. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. But, uh, 
and you lot of wise young people. Me and Angie were coming up for our 20th year anniversary, and uh, we're, I'm 41, and so we were married when we were in our early 20s. That's, that goes against the grain of society. Society says, oh, you wait until you're in your 30s these days. That's what they say, because you're so much wiser then. But actually, what society doesn't tell you is, you wait until your 30s, you just have lots of sex before then. So we chose actually to love each other, enter a covenant, and be married from a young age. Um, so I, stuff what society thinks. Do what God wants you to do. Getting married young is not an issue as long as you're very mature and as long as it's done in, with wisdom. Also, waiting until you're older is no problem as well. Age gap, I don't think is an issue in my mind. My dad and my mum, my dad was, oh, what was the age? I think there were about 17 or 18 or 19 years between them. You know, there's... Uh, Mum was six, no. Uh, <laughs> Mum was about 19 when she met Dad, and Dad was already, I guess, uh, late 30s. Uh, and, hey, that's cool. So Dad's 90 now, and I'm 41. But age gap doesn't matter. What all that matters is, is it right? Is it, in, is it right in the sight of God? I think that's, that's all that matters. Um, we're going to sort of rephrase this, but on the subject of online dating, what's... Is it, is it okay? Um, or what's the best way to navigate that the new, with technology and effort moving in that direction, online dating? What are your thoughts? Do you want to answer first? Um, yeah. Um, I guess, I guess um, is online dating okay? Or is it, is it the best way? Or is it like something you should avoid? Um, I think, to us, I don't really have an opinion on that. Um, I don't think it's a right or wrong thing. Um, I think God can use those things as well. Um, I think there's probably some things that are helpful to understand about it. Uh, people don't always say who they are online totally correctly um, with anything. <laughs> Facebook, you, like, you're not sure about the whole story all the time. Um, and so it's important to sort of go in with wisdom, um, be accountable. Hey, if you're going on a date with someone that you've never met physically, let one of your friends know where you're going. It's wise. Um, the, the whole idea, one of the most popular dating apps is Tinder. Um, either you or maybe one of your friends use that. Um, and the whole idea of Tinder is that you see someone's picture, do you think they're hot or not? And you swipe right or swipe left, depending on your perspective. How do you know this, Dan? I've heard about it. <laughs> I, I get to pastor students. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and so what that does, it gives it a mentality is, you know what, you judge someone by their looks. And you know what, your looks are going to go. You're going to get grey. You're going to get wrinkly. And so that's not a good start or foundation. Um, and so um, it can give false uh, expectations, impressions. And so it's probably, I, I've not been to a wedding yet, but it's like, yeah, we met over Tinder. Uh, but there are some, there's probably some good websites. Um, I don't know any off the top of my head. But um, be safe, be wise, be accountable. Um, and I would say that for any. T- any, whether offline or online dating. Yeah. Um, I would say maybe if you are online dating and wanting to be up with someone, it, if you're not meeting up regularly, it's going to take longer to get to know them. And so I would say don't rush that relationship. Um, take your time to get to know their character, not just what they say their characteristics are. Um, walk through life with them, go through different seasons, uh, challenging times, good times, and before you're like, okay, I'm going to commit. That's right. So my, my comment very quickly to add to that, in the context of community, accountability, you're absolutely right. Um, comment on online dating. Online is just a place, you know, and the world has changed. You know, it used to have different types of places, the marketplace, the 
pub, the whatever place, social spaces. It's just another place where you can meet people. So it's just it's neutral. It's just a place. I think there's bad places, like you're saying, Tinder. But there'll be other perfectly neutral, perfectly ordinary goods places where you can meet people online, safe places. In fact, Grant, who asked one of the questions, Grant met Jane online. That's how they met. Now, Grant used to be a bodybuilder. So I don't know if he had this, these kind of pictures of uh, his six-pack or whatever. You can ask him. He has got those pictures. I don't know if he put that on his profile or not. Though. Uh, but him and Jane met online. Alan, who led worship tonight, Alan met Tony on the internet. And they have a fantastic marriage. She was from America. He's from here. They met and doing great and just a great part, part of the church here. So it's, it's completely legit. There's no stigma. There's no problem. It's just another place where you can meet someone. There's no problem wanting to meet someone. Don't ever feel a stigma with that. It's just a natural God-given desire. And just make sure you're accountable and wise in how you do that. Cool. We're, we've almost run out of time. Um, there's been lots of great questions. There's still some here I would love to go through, but we are going to meet again on the 26th of November for more questions in that time. Um, just quickly before we finish, does anyone have a, a follow-up question um, about a couple of those last questions or anything that hasn't been answered that you really need an answer tonight on? Cool. Pete, would you, would you pray for us? Yeah, absolutely. Father, thank you so much for uh, the questions that have been asked and the honesty that lies behind those questions. And God, some of those questions are really deeply personal and uh, represents sometimes hurts, uh, bad experiences, and also deep desires. God, you know everyone in this room. As we said earlier, God, we cannot change the past. We cannot. But we can know the forgiveness of God. We can know the grace of God. We can know the healing of God. Forgiveness for when we've been abusive. Forgiveness for when we've been sinful. Grace healing for when we've been hurt grace to forgive when we've been wounded and offended and i pray god we would walk whole because of god pray god bless everyone here bless those who listen online and are connecting just now through social media god i pray bring wholeness and strength in relationships god thank you your bible says as we delight ourselves in the lord you give us the desires of our heart and I pray for each person in this room. I thank you, God, your promise is true for everyone. I pray, first of all, we would delight ourselves in you. And I pray, secondly, that God, in the context of people who delight themselves in you, that we would then have every other desire that's in our heart that's good and from God. In Jesus' name, bless us as we go. Amen. Amen.